this compared to bodybuilding is so much more competitive than anything. I'm a very, I'm a highly competitive person, but this thing, if you sleep at the wheel for even a couple months, you could be gone. Is bodybuilding about selfies, steroids, magazines, and muscles? How do I become a successful pro bodybuilder or fitness competitor? Where do I even start if I'm new? And the biggest question of all, what are the judges looking for anyway? Even today with the internet, many people first discover bodybuilding by word of mouth. A lack of regulation has caused a boom of unqualified coaches, scattered info, biased advice, dangerous protocols, and posing trends that are a hot mess. After 20 years in the business, I have seen it all. Week after week, I'm gonna talk about taboo topics that get swept under the rug, provide you tips and strategies to gain a competitive edge and stand out on stage in any division or federation. I'm gonna answer all the burning industry questions without the bias. I have competed across six federations, earned pro status in three, and judged in two. I've coached posing and choreography for men and women in all federations and divisions. I know just how much competing means to you. I'm your host, Michelle Welcome, and you are listening to the Everything Else in Bodybuilding podcast. Be sure to download your free guide, Five Things Every Bodybuilder and Fitness Competitor Needs to Know Before Your Next Show at eeinbb.com. That's www.eeinbb.com. Welcome back to the Everything Else in Bodybuilding podcast. I am your host, Michelle Welcome, and with me today is my co-host, Vasilios Metropolis. Oh, man, here we go again. And the topic of our podcast today is the evolution of the sports supplement industry, and I honestly could not think of a more credible source to have as a guest to talk about uh, the evolution of the industry. So I'm going to introduce our guest, Rich Gaspari. Rich has been in the industry for 30 years. He's probably one of the best to ever do bodybuilding, in my opinion. He was a bodybuilder from the a top professional bodybuilder from the mid 80s through the 90s. He won the very first Arnold Classic in 1989, the Mr. America, the Mr. Universe, the professional Mr. World, and is a three time runner up in the most coveted title in professional bodybuilding, the Mr. Olympia. But we're going to talk to Rich because also what resonates with me is his work ethic is unlike anybody else. And his uh, business background is like anybody else. And Rich started a supplement line from his garage and built it to a multi-million dollar company. So we're going to talk about the evolution of the sports supplement industry with Rich. Rich, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Can you please talk about how you got into the supplement industry? Describe your most memorable moment as an athlete as well. Some, something that you might still think about today. As, a, as an athlete? Okay. Well, first off, I, I did start in the garage, but I started my, my parents' garage, you know. So what got me into the supplement industry is I was always intrigued by usage of sports nutrition and, and products to help me excel in bodybuilding. You know, my selfishness to using supplements was a way that if I was 1% or a quarter percent better in using a supplement, maybe I can, you know, it could be a, a place of from second to first. So in those times, you know, which is now going back into the, uh, you know, nineties, there wasn't much products out there. There were, I think creatine was just developed. Uh, there were branch chain aminos, uh, it was like cod liver oil and, and you know, and, and desiccated liver, 
the uh, whey protein was like horrible because it, it, it was, it, we now sell whey protein isolates. We sell whey protein concentrates that are 80%. Back in the day, there was like maybe whey protein concentrate 30%. That means there's only 30% whey protein where the other 70% was a bunch of fillers and crap that gave you the basic craps, you know, from using them, you know, and, and those were the products that were available. But I was, you know, I always believed in using certain products. I, I felt, you know, creatine worked. I felt branch chains worked, desiccated liver worked. So I used those products using, you know, various uh, supplements to get leaner, choline, isotol, methionine were products that I studied. And, you know, I went to, I went to university, I went to Rutgers University and I, I was a pre-med student. Um, I was into my, into my, I went two years, I was into my third year, but I was competing, you know, very young, uh, you know, when I started my bodybuilding career, I was in my teens. Um, I went into the nationals and got, and and just at a young age of 20, I got top five in the nationals. Uh, a guy named Ed Connors who ran gold's gym asked me, would I be interested in moving to California to become a manager of a gym? in the Valley. And at that time, you know, it was really to be a great bodybuilder. You had to be in California. You had to be, you know, to go to Venice, you had to see, you know, all the other top bodybuilders because in bodybuilding, I was one of those guys that was winning all the local shows. So they called me a big fish in a little pond. And for me it's like, you know what, I want to be, I want to be the big fish in the big pond. So where do I go? I, so I moved to California and it was a great move. I moved to California. I managed the Gold's Gym. I ended up training um, with Lee Haney, who was an eight-time Mr. Olympia. At that time, he hadn't won Mr. Olympia, but he saw how, you know, you talked about my work ethic. He saw how hard I trained in the gym every day. And he's like, man, you're a kid that's like frothing at the mark, at the mouth to be, you know, to be the best. And I, I you know, became his training partner. He won his first Olympia. Uh, that year that I moved to California and I won both the Mr. America and Mr. Universe. And back then you had to win the Mr. Universe to turn pro. There was five pros in the entire world every year at in, in those days. And today, as you know, there's like a thousand pros. You wouldn't even know who a pro is anymore. But then it was very prestigious to turn pro because once you turn pro, pretty much you would end up competing in a pro show, which which I did. The following year, came second in uh, the New York Pro, and then third in the Mr. Olympia within the first, you know, the first year of turning, you know, turning pro. So your most um, memorable, what you still think about today, is that beginning journey. That it must have been quite a feeling when you were asked to come and manage the gym over in California. What was the vibe of Gold's Gym back in that mm-hmm. time for you? Would it feel well, this, like this you was a in? new? This was a new gym in the Valley, you know, the San Fernando Valley. This was Reseda. It wasn't the you know, I got to train at the Venice Gold's gym, but I wanted to be near um, Woodland Hills where the Weeder, you know, Weeder was. And I wanted to get a chance to maybe, maybe get to meet, you know, Joe Weeder, um, you know, because that's what every aspiring bodybuilder wanted to do. But I mean, it was a great atmosphere. Like, you know, the difference is, is like you're in a gym and then there's all pros in there that are training. And then there's like famous actors training in there. And it's just the who's who of, of people that are training. The one in the Valley, there's a lot of actors in that gym because it was close to Hollywood. It was a lot of just, you know, TV actors. And, you know, I, I became friends with uh, certain actors and stuff at that time. Got to train them. Um, 
They let you was, train them. You didn't scare I, them. Actually, <laughs> one of the body, one of the guys was like Robert Blake, who um, was Beretta, and if you remember from way back in the day, I mean, he's not that great memory now because he was known for like, I guess he got away from murder and murdering his his, his wife. I don't know, or his girlfriend. If you heard about him. Wow, no. <laughs> but at that time, it was cool to get to train guys like him and other guys. Um, one of the actors named Hunter. There was a lot of different guys. Flip Wilson. These are all actors back in the 80s and 90s that you don't hear about today. But those are all guys that that, that I would meet and see in the gym regularly. All the um, Olympia competitors back then would train in this gym. This gym that was in the Valley was amazing because I don't know if you know the member, the, uh, a guy named Fred Hatfield. He was known as Mr. Squatty. He was able to do the first thousand pound squatty train in that gym. Um, the one of the um, this guy named Steve Borden, who was actually a tag team partner with the Ultimate Warrior, was a wrestler. Uh, I, I guess his name in, in wrestling was Sting. If you remember him as a wrestler, yeah. Yeah. he trained there. Um, Jeff Everson, if you remember him back in the day, he was a writer for Muscle and Fitness. His wife, Corey Everson, who won multiple Miss Olympias, trained there. Lee Haney trained there. Albert Beckles trained there. Bertel Fox trained there. And these are all bodybuilders from. What a vibe. You know, yeah, right. So when you walk yeah. into this gym, what did it feel like? Oh, it was amazing. It, it had such an amazing atmosphere because I was so hungry. Here's the thing you know, I was not intimidated to move to California. I was this very just brash young kid, you know, at 20 years old that said, I'm conquering the world. So when I moved to California, I don't want to be disrespectful here, but I was basically saying everybody here is like a wimp, you know, <laughs> and I'm going to take over, you know, the gyms here. And that's the way I was. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, you know? like So when I went there, I, the first thing I did is, I don't, you know, if you remember a guy named the, the, the Barbarian Brothers, they were really big in the muscle and fitness there's these two big guys I've trained and I, I trained in Venice golds and I was, I was super strong on legs. I, I can squat almost close to 800 pounds. I did 785 and I can do reps with 500 pounds for like 25 reps. And I would, I was a very fast paced trainer, whatever you remember bodybuilding named uh, Tom Platts. Oh yeah. yeah the big legs. Yeah. yeah. So whatever he did in the magazines, I duplicated it and did it even more <laughs> to try to, to be able to be better than him. So when I went to the gym, I would challenge all the, the big name bodybuilders that I could train harder than any of these guys. And at, that's what people saw in me. They just saw this like hungry bodybuilder that, you know, and I didn't have the greatest genetics. I had, I had okay genetics, good genetics, but a lot of it was perseverance mentally. And you asked me before, like what, you know, were the attributes of bodybuilding? I think it was just the mental perseverance I had in being the best. I, I had no doubt in my mind that I would be the best bodybuilder in the world, even though critics were telling me I didn't have the genetics to be the best and to be able to become second three years in a row and the most prestigious, the most prestigious show in bodybuilding and win the Arnold Classic, win multiple contests, European Grand Prix, beating many guys with greater genetics than me because I was the first bodybuilder to come with striated glutes, you know, uh, high definition that other bodybuilders were have never obtained. The, the, the definition and conditioning I was in was never seen before me. And I had, I set a new, just a new press, a new uh, way of getting in shape that people have never seen before. 
And a lot of it, people asked me, thought it was drugs and all this. It, it was genetics. I, I, had a, I, I had a genetic predisposition to get extremely lean. I could get extremely, you know, fibrous, you know, my muscles, my muscles popped. I just, you know, they said I didn't have a small enough waist. I didn't have a wide enough clavicle. You know, I wasn't tall enough. I wasn't big enough. All these different things that I was told. Um, but I just did. I looked at every aspect of what I needed to be the be to be the best. And that's having the best tan, having the best presentation, having the best, you know, being the most ripped, hiding my weaknesses. You know, we, you know, I know in the interview, we're going to talk about posing. It was just you know, if I stood hours in the mirror posing my body because I wanted to show every strong point and, you know, a lot of great bodybuilders that were there that I was beating, they didn't know how to present themselves the way I could. So I can show my strong points, make myself look very confident because if you're posing hours on your own in a, in a, in a room, you know, with hours, you're, you, you're going to be much better at showing your body as opposed to someone that's doing it just, you know, after they train, they do 15, 20 minutes of posing and they think that's enough. And I'm the biggest critic of today's bodybuilding because there's so many bodybuilders that are really great, but they just don't put efforts into the posing, which mm. they should. I think because- the effort in itself is something, and I a hundred percent respect your fiercely competitive nature. I love that. I'm very much fiercely competitive. I get it. And, yeah. but when you talk about the posing part to me, that is, that is the one part that is the most preventable. You are leaving a placing at least on the table for poor posing. I've been exactly. in the industry. I've not been in the industry as long as you, but I've been in the industry for 20 years. And my specialty is posing because of that exact reason. It's a competitive yeah. edge and people leave it on the table. So my question to you is why, when you know that there's at least a placement or two, or maybe more, because you're not showing off your best features, you're showing everybody your worst. <laughs> like, I, I, I think, why? I don't know how many years ago it went back that, you know, there was a posing round in bodybuilding and they were, and they basically, they would judge posing and they would, they would score it. Um, then they took that off the table completely. So I guess bodybuilders thought it wasn't necessary to come up with, you know, great routines. I know. It's different, like for even bikini or wellness or men's physique, they still also have to practice their turns and how they look and their presentation. They look confident on stage. And if you just do a couple minutes of it, of it, like you said, it's the most preventable way of where you can place two, three places higher and they just don't do it. I don't know if it's laziness because you do all this training, you do this, you know, you do all this cardio. You do this dieting and then you don't go inside of a room and spend an hour just doing your quarter turns, doing your poses. And for me, I would do, I would spend an hour and a half in a posing room doing quarter turns, mandatory poses, and then doing my routine over and over and over. And it was funny. I had some, I'm not going to mention names, but there was like some um, new pros that I put them through a posing, you know, session. And they were just dead. <laughs> Me doing this today. I said, I did this every day. And I said, you need to do this. I'm not sure if the guy was going to do this, but I go, if you want to be the best, this is what you have to do. And I'm not just sure if people just don't do it because they don't think it's necessary or it's just I laziness. Think it's work. I think it's work ethic. We yeah. actually had a conversation with, he's a um, Olympian, current Olympian, um, open men's bodybuilder, and he knows his posing needs work, but he's not working on it. 
And I think it is the monotony of it. And I think that drive, you have to be so laser focused and you want to win, you need to have a winning mindset, which means if it requires you to do the same thing every day, not till you get it right, but till you can't get it wrong, people just don't have that drive and that focus like you. I, I, I don't get it. And it's like, it seems like the work ethic of, and it's not just bodybuilding. It seems like total in the world. I agree. 100%. <laughs> And, and, you know, what we had from the 80s and 90s and even into the early 2000s, you had bodybuilders that really put their efforts into it or, or in anything in life. You see a lot of people just want handouts and it's just not that way. And if you want to be the best, you know, I noticed when um, the current Mr. Olympia, um, now what's his name? The the the, the one from Rami? Egypt. Rami, yeah. Big Rami. Big Rami. So what changed him the first year he won is that he spent hours posing. I don't know if you knew this. And I watched him because I was commentating the show and I noticed he can he can hit the pose first and stay stay with it. As everyone was failing, he would stay with it last. And I go, and I said it right there with Sean Ray. I said, he practiced posing. You can see it. And he's going to win the show. And he didn't think he was going to win the show. He's going to win the show. Absolutely dominated. He turned, he hit that pose. He hit it and stick it. And he was the last one out of it. And he was precise with his posing. And there was no, no sweating, no effort. He was there to win. Yeah, exactly. And that, and and you saw it. So you saw it. And I, you know, and I, I, I called it out right away. I said, he's going to win the show. And they're like, oh, his legs are too big. He doesn't have this. He doesn't have that. I go, Sean, he's going to win the show. And I was right. And, and that goes to show he doesn't have perfect genetics, but his presentation was so good. And he, he had, he, he portrayed so much confidence that day on stage that that's what gave him the win, you know, in the show and, and, and other bodybuilders, if they don't recognize that you want to be the best. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's coming back. I see more of it coming back slowly. You know, it was almost like there was a, like a period of time that bodybuilders that they just didn't care about presentation they just went on stage but it seems to be getting a little better i think a lot of people are talking about it a little bit more even you know myself i teach all divisions men women divisions every single one of them my background started in bodybuilding so the posing and stage performance is kind of my niche so i actually have people can show up to posing practice every week for their division i have it every single week for people to show up and this is for everybody all divisions, even all federations. So it's it's something that I truly believe because I've seen it, having judged for competitions, I've seen people and I've scored people down for things that were preventable. Imagine a pro bodybuilder who can't open his lats. Yeah. Why? What were you doing, <laughs> what were you doing for all those weeks of prep? What were you I know, doing? You're, you're, you're doing, it. you know, lat pull downs and chin-ups and rows and all this stuff to develop the body, but not to be able to present your body and, and bodybuilding is all, you know, any of these, uh, you know, bodybuilding, bikini physique, they're all, pres- you know, it's what all the work you did is just presenting yourself on stage for that short period of time. Yeah. You know, come the best. And not yeah, being and able he- to walk in heels, f- absolute fail. Yeah. That's for the women being able to walk in heels, be able to transition in movement, being in your body. Those are things that are a skill that need to, that, need to be practiced just as much as your training because everything on stage that you work so hard for is communicated 100% nonverbal, 100%. And that you talked about big Rami, he just jumped off that scream. And it was like, I said to Vasilios, we were, I was like, do you see that? Do you see that? Yeah. 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 No. And that's, and that's what I saw because I'm an old school guy. And I was just like, he, 
he really prepared himself. And he had Dennis James when he came to the United States. I think it was, he practiced for like, I think he came in like over a month before the show. And that's all Dennis James did is, and he did it. Like he told me, cause I asked him, so what did you do to prepare him? He said, any time in the day, I just get him up. Okay, we're going to pose. And he'd do like, you know, 40 minutes. And then two, three hours later, okay, we're going to pose. And he kept doing that to him three, four times a day. Just had him pose any time, any moment, even when he was tired, after he was training, after his cardio. He said, I made him do that. And he he followed my direction. And that's why, he, you know, he ended up, you know, becoming the winner, you know. The passion that you talk about with this industry, it just, it jumps out of the screen at us right now. And I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours because I'm, I'm obsessed with bodybuilding, obviously. Well, we're still <laughs> training now, right? But, like, I mean, you're still training to do a show right now. I know. I can't stop. I yeah. love oh, you're competing for show? You're, you're competing I, for show? I started at 20 and I'm in my 40s still competing. I love it. I oh, absolutely wow. love it. So I, I can you know, appreciate your passion for it. And I, I literally could talk to you all day long. I would be, I, I would be know. still competing if I didn't have this injury. And now that <laughs> I fixed it, I may be making a comeback. There I was going to ask you, you, go. you, are you gonna make a comeback? Oh, that'd be so awesome. Well, I'm a little, I'm a little older, you know, than you. Come like, on, where's 50. that, Pat? Where's that, where's that winning mindset? I don't want to hear that nonsense. Well, you know what? I'm going to see, I'm going to see how my body comes back. And if I, you know, I start seeing muscle come back and it's exciting at least to do a transformation to show people like, look at the transformation I've been able to make that next year I'll be 60 do, you yeah. know, doing this. So it's, we need to know, build been, up that master's division for the Olympia, man. We exactly. Need to, you know what I'm yeah, there's a 50 and six. Yeah. yeah. Actually bodybuilders in their fifties are still amazing. You can look at some of these guys that look unbelievable at 50. Yeah. I would argue yeah. that the, you guys are going to have more quality. you got more time, right? Yeah. Truth. Yeah. <laughs> and so the way that you built your body was foundational in years and years and years of training. You didn't expedite it over two years of just extreme no. protocols. So you've got that base there that I think is also missing. Mm. Yeah. It, I, I just, I'm, I'm excited. Like, like the doctor told me not to do anything for the next two weeks. And it's been really hard because I almost feel like, you know, grabbing a dumbbell and do it, but I'm like, okay, I'm going to listen to him. I want this thing to heal, you know, and so that I, you know, I don't want to do something before, you know, and make it worse. So yeah, I'm definitely excited about, you know, getting back in the gym. Awesome. So, so Rich, let me ask you, at what point did you decide to shift from uh, managing this place in California to like, I need to focus on the supplement industry? Was that a, okay. Yeah. So that was a little bit of a transition. Once I, you know, I moved to California and managed the gold's gym. Um, and what happened there is I was managing the gold's gym, but I started training people cause uh, I had an entrepreneurial way of myself. And I'm like, I'm spending 40 hours a week working in this gym. I started acquiring clients in, in the gym itself. And I said, I'm going to make the same amount of money in three hours that I do in eight to 10 hours, you know, working at this gym. So I quit I, while I was living in California, I quit working as a manager and I had an array of athlete of people that I was training athletes that I was training, you know, while I was also preparing for the nationals and the Mr. Universe. So I did that. I stayed in California about a year and a half after I was, uh, at, I won. Once I won, I, you know, the year later I went into, like I said, the New York pro night of the champions came second, came third in the Olympia, then started winning all pro shows. I went through my whole career, you know, being a top bodybuilder, but I did start to notice this, this injury when you asked me, was it time or is it like something that happened? 
through time, I started seeing where training hard, I started seeing like my right side, just funky stuff was happening. I, I, you know, I saw like my lat wasn't as good. My chest wasn't as good. My arm was shrinking, just weird stuff was happening. So it was, it was actually nerve damage. And then when I ruptured the disc and it just boom, that was the end of my career. So you asked me, what was the transition to entrepreneur? Well, while I was laying in bed with this arm that I couldn't use anymore. And I said, I can't use my body anymore. What am I going to do? I was like, I want to, I want to start a supplement company. And everyone's like, how are you just going to start a supplement company? I said, well, I became one of the best bodybuilders but people told me I couldn't do it. So now I'm going to figure out how to start a supplement company because I love, uh, I use supplements. I'm an avid user and I like to make a brand, uh, take away the guesswork in supplements, make my own brand that I can sell to individuals that want to be the best. So I started calling all different manufacturers while I was bedridden, you know, about visiting them and seeing, you know, that I could do my own brand. At that time I was competing in bodybuilding. I sold everything because I no longer compete. I lost my contract. I was living pretty well as a pro bodybuilder. I, you know, I had a, a nice condo on the water, I was driving around a, a Porsche, living life. I sold everything, moved back to my parents, bought a minivan, took all my assets and put it into, it was about 80 grand and put it into buying my first products for Gisbari. What were those products? They were, they were basic protein, whey protein, creatine, BCAAs. I had a fat burner, um, a multivitamin. I had about five products that I, that I made um, working with a manufacturer, I worked with several manufacturers in developing, you know, uh, my own brand with the little bit of money that I had left, you know, to start this brand Moved back, you know, can you imagine moving back with your parents, like in your thirties when I was super successful, you know, people, you know, I was a big, you know, big bodybuilder. Now all of a sudden I'm going back and buying a minivan, no less to use it, to go make deliveries, with, you know, from place to place to place with this brand. And I, I just took it to, you know, various gyms that I trained in when I was competing and I brought it to stores. Um, and at first, you know, people were like, wow, poor Rich Gasparri, look what he's doing. He's there like trying to, you know, sell these, these products. I, I would go to like shows and buy a 10 by 10 booth and I'd sit there selling, you know, my products and people were just, they were more like felt sorry for me than, Really? Saw me develop. They, well, they didn't see me developing a business. They said, well, this is the great Rich Gasparri, the top Mr. Olympia. And now he's sitting there, you know, selling a product instead of being the bodybuilder that he was. And little was do you young. know, behind the scenes in your brain, it's like this, I bet. <laughs> oh, I, I said, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. And, you know, I, I know I'm starting this from nothing, but I'm going to make it. And it, it was, it was, uh, you know, so how did I go from, you know, starting this brand to becoming a global brand? You know, a lot of that had to do with me traveling as a professional bodybuilder. I had so many contacts on the international side as well to say, Hey, I got this brand. Would you be interested? I just started making calls and trying to get favors to get them to take, you know, take on the brand. And here's one thing that I did is, um, you know, who Europa sports is their, their distributor, and at the time, it was Eric Hillman, and he was judging a lot of shows. I became an NPC judge. And one of the reasons I became an NPC judge is I can go to these shows and then set up a booth 
that they would give me for free and I have myself work it or I have, you know, a friend help me work it. And then I would judge the show. I said, I'll judge the show for free, but I want a free booth. And I would do that just to, you know, to sell the product. So I was sitting next to Eric Hillman, who at that time was the distributor. And I'm like, Eric, how do I get my brand into your, you know, with your distribution? He's like, oh, you're not ready. You know, you got to have a, a demand for this everywhere in the country. I know, you know, you know you're Rich Gasparri, but this thing is probably only selling like in your local area. And I said, well, I, I, it is starting to sell in other places. So I'm, like I'm listening to him saying he's got to hear a demand for it. They were in Charlotte, um, North Carolina. So what I did is I started calling all the local gyms and stores saying, do you carry Gasparri Nutrition? You know, as a, as somebody else, not as me. There you go. And I had other people call to say, do you carry Gasparri Nutrition? And the guys were it. like, we don't carry Gasparri Nutrition. So then I'd call and say, hey, I got Gasparri Nutrition. Would you like to get, you know, you know, get my product? And I started selling it that way to these guys because I said, because they go, you know, it's funny. People are asking for your brand. <laughs> so I got it in. And then Eric Kilman, I called him again. And then he's like, you know, it's funny. I goes, there is a there's a demand for your brand here in Charlotte. So let's take it on. So they took on the brand and they started selling it. And that's how I got into a bigger distributor. And that, you know, it went from doing a couple thousand to doing 50,000 and a hundred thousand. How long just, did, it do, did it take you to get that momentum from your, from your minivan? It, it took, it took me about four years, four years to get some momentum, you know, and how many shows did you judge during those four years? Oh my God. <laughs> I did every local show in the tri-state area. I, I would say I've done probably in, in my career of doing this close to a thousand shows that I've, you know, sat and people always say, wow, the work ethic of Rich Gasparri, cause I'd be in every show. I'd be setting it up, be the first guy to set up and the last person to leave talking to everybody, handing out samples. And, you know, when I traveled internationally, that was another thing I'd set up tours and go to, you know, vary, you know, say I was in UK, the guy would buy it. I said, listen, I'll visit every one of your stores if you take on my brand. So I would go store to store to store to store to store, visiting all these stores, doing a seminar. And then the products of course would start selling. That's how I got the brand to start selling is it was just grinding. It was just grinding as much as I could to, get people to buy it. So if you ask me how many gyms and stores are, it's thousands that I've been able to visit. And I did this multiple times every year. I'd say, okay, now it's my Australian tour. I got to visit all the stores in Australia, all the stores in New Zealand, go there from, you know, for two and a half weeks. And I, and it wouldn't be one store. It would be three stores a day. It'd be boom, 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 boom. Were you judging shows? Is that how you- No, then I stopped judging, but judging for me was a platform to help push my brand. That was the reason I was, I love bodybuilding, but I was more like, you know what? I need to build this brand. And if I go to all these shows, there's a lot of gym owners. There's a lot of store owners that go to these, to go to these, you know, contests. And that was, you know, the reason why I did it. But after a while I was judging right up into where the company was doing well. And then, you know, uh, two of my top athletes were Flex Wheeler, Flex Lewis, I'm sorry, Flex Lewis, multiple Olympia winner. I had, I had Hidi Yamagishi, who's still my athlete. And I ended up, you know, judging them. And when I judged them, I had a lot of flack from people saying I shouldn't be judging because of favoritism. And it was kind of funny because when I judged them, except for Flex, who deserved to win, but when I judged like Heat, I placed him lower than what he got because I was so judgmental about 
I don't want people thinking that I'm being favoritism to Hide. So I actually did the opposite and placed him lower than what he got in his placings because I was being so like critical on him because he was my athlete, you know, that worked for me. So, and then I said to Jim, I said, I'm not judging no more. I, I can't judge because I got so much crap, even though it's not true. I think it's, it's, it's not a good idea that I judge athletes that I pay because then it's going to look like I'm, you know, fixing the show. And I'm one out of, you know, this judges, there's seven, there could be five, seven or nine judges. You're one judge out of those people. So you're not going to make that much of a difference. You know, it doesn't matter. Everybody sees that and they're going to judge you for that. Yeah. And, and then, yeah. yeah. But then, you know, speaking of that, I mean, the industry itself has changed a lot throughout the throughout the years. And you just talked about two athletes that you sponsored. Can we talk a little bit about sponsorships and how they've changed since the early days? People used to give them, give audience members who are especially new ones to the industry who have no clue. What were contracts like then and how are they evolved to what they are today? Do people still well, get contracts today? <laughs> I mean, there's certain bodybuilders that can still get contracts, but they're nowhere near the amount of money. I mean, flex, uh, Lewis was our one of our top athlete. I, I got him when he was an amateur and he went into like making six figures. You know, he had a six figure contract doing very well with us. Uh, I had Branch Warren also making a six figure contract. Bodybuilders um, today, because there's first of all, there's so many pros out there, unless you're one of the top pros. It's all about now you have these affiliate programs and athlete programs that they get discount codes and then they push the products and that's what we do. We use today. So you, you, you can pay athletes some money, but they're not in the six figure anymore. It's not like that. It's almost like if this athlete doesn't perform for you by pushing out your products through his social media and you don't see a, a, an increase in your sales, you're not going to pay them. It's totally different. And, you know, we back then, you know, a lot of athletes had huge multi, you know, they could have a hundred, you know, six figure contracts, high six figure contracts, like muscle tech was giving out to guys like Jake Cutler and, and, uh, Phil Heath. And those guys were making a lot of money. And when did it change? You don't see that. It yeah. Ch- what's that? When did it change? I think it changed in the last couple years. First of all, the magazines started going away. Um, social media became more of a powerful vehicle to be recognized by. And there was a lot of top bodybuilders that weren't popular in social media, but there was these people, these influencers that never competed that were more popular than, and had more followers than a, a Mr. Olympia. And they were getting, you know, more, um, attention from supplement, you know, companies to say, let me use this guy to see how, you know, this guy can help push my brand. Cause he has such a big following. The, the whole thing that just happened was like social media. That's what happened. And it just changed so much that you can actually grow a company with multiple athletes. I look at it, you know, there's strength in numbers. I don't need one athlete. I can have, I have 970 affiliates and athletes. Mm-hmm. Out of those, there's around 35 that I would say are, you know, they're, they're pros but they're not super pros that are like in the Mr. Olympia, but you know, like qualify for the Olympia. And those guys are the guys I use to push the brand, you know, that push out their social media and helps help sales of the brand. And because I have almost a thousand of them, those numbers equal much bigger than one guy 
that would have that would have say I don't know a million followers that I have to pay much more money. So I think that's what changed. Supplement companies started realizing that you don't have to pay one athlete this big amount of money, and that even if when they did pay these athletes big money, they didn't see a return on investment. Um, today, everything is about a return on investment. You know, when I when I was we're talking about the old days and today, like we used to have all these big boots. I, I'd have these huge uh, boots at the Arnold at the Mr. Olympia. You know that they were just just huge. Spend two hundred fifty thousand for a booth that I would give away. Just you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand in samples. You know, spend like three, four hundred grand. And was that money coming back to me, you know, in a return in investment? I'm thinking it is because I'm, I'm sitting there and, you know, pushing out product, but you're only pushing out product to the audience that you have there. Maybe there's, you know, the Olympia may have 20, 30,000 people or the Arnold, you have 50, 60,000 people. And, and that's all you have to push. And a lot of those people just want free shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're not really, they're, they're going to take your product once. They're going to get your free sample. And what dawned on me as I, I was watching online these people that were just collecting samples from the various booths and in their hotel room, they're dumping this big pile of samples that they got for free. They go, I'm good for a year with all these different brands on supplements. I don't have to buy anything. And I'm like, how is that helping me? It's yeah. adult you know, trick-or-treating. What's that? It's adult trick-or-treating. They're yes, it's adult trick-or-treating. <laughs> <laughs> and those guys are not buyers and they would... And it actually, I have to police the booth because those same guys would come back, take samples, come back again, take samples, come back again and take. So I'm like, this is not working. Yeah. And you know, what was the big shift was online sales. Online sales have totally changed. And, you know, me evolving from where I was to where I am today all had to do with online sales. You know, I went through a very difficult time with my company. I went through personal issues, um, going through a divorce where the judge awarded her a bunch of money that ended up putting my company to bankruptcy, which is the most horrible thing, especially I got my company close to 90 million. We got up to like 85 million in sales, uh, you know, globally. And then the amount of money that I had to pay for the divorce, I said to the judge, if you do this, it's going to put me into bankruptcy. They didn't believe me and they put me into business bankruptcy. And so Rich, you go the, from grinding hmm. with your in your parents' garage with a minivan, going show to show, store to store, having people call stores. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, absolute grind for four years. Build this business over how many years to the point of divorce? Uh, how many years was that? Time? It was into around 12 years. So you're 12 years wow. into your business and you're facing a moment where it's bankruptcy. And yeah. at this point, you could sell off. That was your opportunity to sell, correct? Actually, fifteen about fifteen years. Now it's in twenty five. Yeah, let's let's go. Let's let's see where we're at. Yeah, but yeah, I was ready to sell off the company. What stopped you? And how did you come out of bankruptcy to once again be the the brand, one of the most credible brands in the industry? Um, I don't know if you realize when you go into bankruptcy that you 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 are in indebted to your debtors. You have to pay back these, you're responsible, you have a fiduciary responsibility to pay back the people you owe money to, you know, and, and it's a, it's a responsibility that you have to be able to come up with a, something to pay them back. And through bankruptcy, bankruptcy protection, 
you can pay 10 cents on a dollar on how to pay back, you know, manufacturers, advertisers, all these different people had to pay back. And it was millions and millions of dollars. So we came up with how to pay them back. And, and, and to pay them back, I had to take on a partner. And taking on a partner is the way I got myself out of it. But the issue was I took on a partner that made me become the minority owner of the company that I started. And that was horrible. So I had to go from that being a minority owner to a couple of years in getting clawing back to get more percentages of my company back, getting rid of that partner, bringing in another partner. And, and that's how I did to try to claw myself back up to get back to company. And, you know, cause I know this is my name. This is my dynasty. It's what I started from, you know, my mom's basement. There's no way I'm going to give up on it. And that's kind of what I did. I just, I didn't give up until I was able to get back what was, you know, what was mine. And it's, it, it's not easy because it's, it's constantly evolving, especially with the industry. And, and I mean, I can attest to it as well. We, we ran into, was it Iron Religion in Florida? Was that Orlando we were in, I believe? We were in Orlando. Yeah. And, and I seen you working out, you were hanging out there. We, we happened to be there as well for the NPC nationals. We got to yes. work out in the next morning. And I remember vividly, you, you'd finished your workout. We were hanging out up front and you, you popped out your cell phone. And it was like you were 20 years old again. You set that cell phone up, you grabbed your supplement, and you were all in on, on selling that thing right then and there. So, I mean, it's just amazing to see that that work ethic is there, that drive is still there. I mean, most people just don't have that. They just don't put that effort in. So that's that's pretty awesome, man. That's pretty so great. Here you, no, are. I, I don't, you know, people ask me, how do, you know, how do you have that? I, you know, I come from, uh, my dad was an immigrant from Italy who came to the United States, um, you know, after, after the war. Um, and then he had to live 10 years in Canada. He told me like, and then come to the United States. And my, my dad always told me, he's like, you know, you got to live here in the United States. I had to, you know, come from another country. You should be, you know, taking advantage of this country and what you can do here. And I, I guess that was just ingrained in my head that, you know, if you don't work hard, my dad was a Mason, um, you know, and I see him every day coming home, just like dirty from, you know, laying bricks and blocks. And I looked at him and said like, man, I never want to be like that, but I want to work hard. I knew I had to work hard, but I didn't want to work like breaking my back, you know, like he did. And I just, I, you know, that uh, mentality that, you know, it was told me if you want anything, you have to work for it and nothing's going to be given to you. And that's been instilled in my head and still is today. And, you know, that's why I look at today's you know, generation of people that just want things handed out. And it's just, that's not life if you want things in life. And it's, it's unfortunate. And I hope things do change, but I'm not sure if they will. Not to get to <laughs> the level that you're at. And how many years did it take you to go from my or minority owner back to, do you own it hundred percent now? Or are you still have a partner? I still have minority partners, but it took me seven years. To become majority seven yes. years after that. So you're over 20 years into the industry. And if you, yes. had to, if you had to start over from scratch today, didn't have that amazing brand name that you have, and obviously the longevity in the sport itself, what would you say to uh, somebody coming into that does have work ethic and maybe has a product or a service, or so they have something that they want to grow and they have your work ethic, would you tell them to go and have a booth at shows? Would you tell them to make phone calls? Would you tell them, what would you tell them to do? I, the first thing I would do is make sure you have the capital to to start a business today. It's much harder because you need 
you need capital to market your brand. Um, get as much knowledge as you can. Start small. Um, starting a business, especially a supplement business, you 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 don't want to have too many SKUs out of the gate to make something grow because it's going to be too difficult to maintain all those SKUs and market all those SKUs. You know, come up with like a couple products that you see are a need in the market. You know, that are out there because if, if you're if you're a, a person who grinds, you're going to see what's out there and you want to develop something better. I mean, it's not developing the wheel, but you know, how can you make the wheel better? You know, so, you know, developing products and there's a lot of good brands out there that they just figure out a way to make something that they feel is better for their base, you know, work on yourself, you know, work on social media. I mean, today it's without social media, you really, you can't grow a brand. I mean, I have close to a million followers and that, you know, and, and guys my age that are still, I, I see big names in bodybuilding that they don't even have 20,000 followers because they don't work at it. I, I worked at building my following on social media to, to grow. I use it to grow my business um, and take it in steps. Like you should not grow a business and take anything out of that business until you can uh, reap the rewards. It's like, you know, watering a, you know, a, a seed and, and having it grow at the beginning it needs a lot more efforts to get that thing going uh, before it can reward you with, you know, with fruit, the same thing with a business. It's like, you cannot touch the revenue from a company. It may take years before you can touch the revenue from the company. You know, when I started Gasparri, I I didn't touch the revenue from the company. I was doing personal training. I was doing whatever I could, you know, but I never touched the money. I just kept rolling it back in it, rolling it back in it, rolling it back until it was, making money. I, I had to get loans for my family to buy product and then pay them back. And it was a lot of just, there's a lot of sacrifices, just like when you're dieting for a show and you, you know, you have to not eat certain foods. It's the same thing. If you're starting a company, you got to be disciplined to say, shoot, I like to buy that with this money. I got all this in the bank. I, it's enough money, but then you're like, well, I want to grow my business and I'm going to need it to be able to, you know, get to another level and you're going to need that capital. So you, you, you don't spend that money, but you rather like, well, I can buy a, a new car if I want to, but you don't do it because you want to grow the business. Yeah, that's great. I mean, in your personal opinion, with so many supplements out there and you're still building your supplement company right now, it, for everyone who, who can understand that story I told was what, less than six months ago, this was the last NPC nationals. He's still out there yeah. hustling on his phone. So, you know, I mean, this doesn't stop, right? Like he's, (laughs) he's still doing it, but with the supplements, that industry is very saturated with Amazon, just everybody popping up. How do you stay above everybody? How do you build that foundation? Like you were talking about, you know, building your base and, and the uniqueness of your supplements. What have you found that's worked? Do you, do you stay to the fundamentals with, you mentioned BCAAs, creatine, are there new supplements in creation right now? What can we expect? Like, where are you at with everything? I, I mean, I redeveloped uh, entirely new pre-workouts. You know, if you see the workout, the pre-workout Super Pump has been a name synonymous with pre-workouts. I, went, I was one of the first pre-workouts with Super Pump 250 and Super Pump Max that actually still sell Super Pump Max to loyal um, buyers who want that, that are like in their 30s and 40s that remember that product. When I developed Super Pump Aggression, I was trying to get the younger market, the the young kid that wants that, you know, super strong product that 
he sees, you know, and it, it had to be a little bit more taboo looking. So if you look at that label, you can see it. It's got graffiti on it with aggression. So I was trying to figure out, let me get to this younger audience. And everyone told me, it's like, Rich, your brand is done. It's more of an older audience because you're old and you're not going to get that younger audience. So I just, I was thinking like a kid and I was looking at the products that were out there. And you talked about certain brands that are out there, um, you know, Black Magic and all these different brands, you know, have these cartoony, you know, ghosts. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to use the old look with a new look to it. So we did the whole you know, the graffiti with the aggression size on was another great product. It was an all in one product that we sold. That was, I didn't ever, I didn't change the formula like aggression. Aggression has, you know, 400 megs of, of uh, caffeine and other stimulants in it. It's got nootropics in it. It's a really strong product that I don't really use. I use half a scoop because it's too strong for me, but young guys want to use that type of product. I develop it for them. Sizon was a product, was an all-in-one product. It contains uh, creatine, branch chains, hydrolyzed protein, three different types of carbohydrates, glycerol. You know, when you take this product, you get you get bigger. I changed the label of that. It, w- it was still selling, but as soon as I made that new look, I uh, called it Get Swole with Sizon. It started selling and became one of my number. It is one, one of my number one, number two products. The other product that was selling, that, that legacy product that's still now selling today is Plasma Jet. If you remember that product, it's a pump product. It's like four pills you take. So I didn't really reinvent the wheel. I kind of redid the formulations, uh, made them better, um, still made them a, a product that is not just like a commodity product, like a creatine or a branch chain. It's got bells and whistles because it's unique. And because it's unique, it does sell uh, to an audience. Um, when I was trying to come back and I was seeing all these proteins, whey protein, there's so much of it. And back in the day, I used to use egg protein. And I was wondering, I said, why isn't there any more like egg protein now, the egg white protein? I think egg whites are like one of the best proteins, but I don't see anyone selling it. And I was like asking around, oh, it's too expensive. Oh, you can't source it. So then I, I, I started looking for it. I actually found it and I flavored it. And I was like, and I know there was a couple brands that were trying to sell egg white protein. Um, one of them was 5%. They were selling egg white crystals. I don't know if you remember that. And I tried it and I said, like, this doesn't taste good. It's got to taste good. Mm. The one thing that I made for success is not only having products that work, is also the taste. If you don't have a product that tastes good, it's not going to sell. You're going to get, you're going to get that hardcore user to use it. And then they're going to kind of like, get tired of it. They're going to go to something else. But if you can make it effective and taste good, you'll get more sales from people outside of just hardcore people. And with the egg protein, a lot of them didn't taste good. I made it taste really good. And with egg protein, it's difficult because it's, it's, it's very salty egg whites. So you can't make flavors like vanilla. It just tastes nasty. So I had to make more like chocolate pita butter. We did a salted caramel. You know, they all had salt notes to them, so they they tasted better, and that's why they sold. So now my egg whites are one of the top selling proteins because they're. I, I looked at a, a, I looked at the market, and I saw like, wow, this hasn't been around. Why is it hasn't been around? And then once I figure why it hasn't been around, let me come up with it and make it better. And at first, they're telling me it ain't going to sell, it ain't going to sell, and now it's like 
everyone wants egg, egg white protein. So you got to look, you got to really, you can't, especially guys that really make it, you can't sit up in your ivory tower. You have to stay with everybody else to see what the need is. If you're not there in the trenches, you know, what products people are looking for, listening to what products are necessary and what people are looking for, you're going to end up becoming a big brand that loses touch with the consumer. And that happens to a lot of brands. They lose touch with the consumer and then they develop like, you know, they have such a big marketing budget that they can keep going with, you know, a protein like Optimum Nutrition. That's a brand. It's a very, I call it a vanilla brand. It's a basic brand that's got amino acids, protein, you know, <laughs> other products, but there's nothing cutting edge in that brand. It's just basic. And they spend a lot of money to get that out to the consumer and it's successful. But if you want to be able to get to the consumer, you have to be cutting edge, not to the point of being illegal, but being cutting edge and and seeing what that small group of people are looking for. And then that will grow, you know, to another level. What is your best product of all time, selling product it's, of all time? It, the best selling product of all times was my Super Pump 250. We were selling a quarter of a million cans a month at one point. Uh, to, and then the, the close second was Novidex, which was my test booster. We sold, you know, I sold $20 million in that product alone. It sold like crazy as one of the most uh, most successful testosterone boosters in in history, you know, that sold in GNC, the number one product, vitamin shop, number one product. It was selling everywhere. And it, it was, what's great about that, it, it had really good margins. You know, people are also looking, you know, what do you need to be successful? Make sure that you can make enough profit you have left for marketing, you know, and then you have enough money to run the company. You know, a lot of people make a mistake that they just try to sell a product based off price biggest mistake is selling a product or a price. You got to sell a product, cause the demand through the marketing. You know, you asked me what I'm doing today. We do a lot of, the last couple of years during the pandemic, when, you know, it was funny, that's when people were so afraid. That's when I was like grinding to say, okay, now it's my time to take over the market. We spent so much on Facebook, Google ads. And because you couldn't go anywhere, the way you market it was through Facebook and Google and just put those ads out. We spent quite a bit of money that we were getting hundreds of thousands of people seeing the products. And with that, the website sales started growing. Once the stores started to open up, the brand came back into those stores. But I had to grind again, come up with new products. We came up with new fat burners, the egg protein, the new look of the pre-workout, the new look of the size on, and you know, just reinvent yourself constantly. If you want to be successful in today's market, you got to reinvent yourself constantly you got to be out there in pe- people's eyes and as soon as you're not there there's someone else to take your place this compared to bodybuilding is so much more competitive than anything i'm a very i'm a highly competitive person but this thing if you sleep at the wheel for even a couple months you could be gone what was you your know, number one break? product during covid what was everybody what was the most popular or popular products during covid um i developed the pre workout you know, the, I don't know why people, I guess we're still training, but I, I developed uh, detonate. I had a fat burner that came out detonate and I developed the egg protein, um, that people were using in their home gyms and stuff, the fat burner. Cause I said, Oh, now that you've been sitting around 
I got a great fat burner for you to use, you know, from the, you know, COVID. And it was kind of like COVID was starting to go away. And that's when we came up with the fat burner. And then we came up with a bunch of other fat burners that we came up with after that. Because, how you do know, you come I, up I do, with these? Like, how do you, these formulas? I mean, I just, how do you even- I just think of, I think of the need of what the consumer is looking for. Then I go to the, uh, the, you know, the formulators and I said, this is what I want something to do this or something to do that. I'm not, listen, I know products and I know ingredients cause I've been doing it so long, but then I have formulators that will tell me like, okay, let's mix this, this and that we get to use it. I experiment with my, I'm always a Guinea pig for all my products. I get to use all my products cause I believe I'm the, you know, I'm still like you, like a hardcore person that loves training. If I use something, I wanted to use it to say that it works. And from there, I just, you know, give it to like, now I have, we have, you know, like I said, 30, 40 elite athletes that I can give products to and say, Hey, try this out. Tell me what you think of it and get their input That's from good. the, from the affiliate program. Once they give me good input, you know, Hey guys, what's a flavor you want to come up with? You know, and they'll tell me, well, this is popular. That's popular. I like this flavor. And I'll go for off that and then use social media to try to see, you know, what the majority of people are looking for. But you need you need to stay in touch with the consumer. If you don't stay in touch with them and you just sit back, you know, in an ivory tire tower, I call it, you are going to lose touch with your your base of people using your products. And quality control. I just want to touch on it briefly because of their in the industry that Blackstone Labs company was spiking their supplements and people were getting sick. So people are buying something on the internet, they're getting it in and they're trying it because there's, I don't know, there's no testing going on. So what was happening is people didn't know that the product was spiked with product with things that were illegal. So they got caught, obviously people went to jail, yada, yada, yada. So my question to you is the quality control. How, how is that maintained and how, who is watching over and overseeing this to make sure that this quality is out there? Well, that's a good question. I mean, a lot of upcoming companies, they get away with, um, remember I talked earlier, I said, you know, you want to make cutting edge product without being illegal. <laughs> and then be, but a lot of guys will take the risk of putting something in there to spike it because then when they take it, you know, if you put steroids in a, in a BCAA, someone's going to use it and they're going to say, Holy crap, I'm getting bigger. I'm getting stronger. And then, that product's BCAA. Gonna, <laughs> yeah. and then, and then they're going to, and then they're going to basically sell more of it. And then they say, well, let, let me take it out of it. Now, now that, that we got the sales going, some companies, some people take that risk and, and they take that risk and it's very dangerous. And, you know, we use all GMP facilities I'm too much of a name that I I would never get away with that. I mean, I'm looked at like under scrutiny by the FDA, by my competitors, you know, that would, you know, right away, I get my products. I know tested by my competitors all the time because they want to see how they can get me. So I, you know, I don't want to do that anyways. I believe in the long term. I've been doing this for 25 years. So the long term is, you know, not doing that because you can make short term things like that and make money short term, but it's not going to last. And and that's what happened to, you know, Blackstone and other companies that have done the same thing. You know, if you're not making the product in a, in a GMP facility, um, sometimes they end up like with Blackstone. I know they had a partnership with the manufacturer that they were able to spike it without really, you know, people knowing because they, the, the manufacturers were in on it too, you know, with them. That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. And the 
one thing that also makes you a little bit different too. So quality, work ethics, so we can trust your products. You said DMP or DNP facility? GMP, GMP, good G- manufacturing practice. Okay. Those are, those, those are manufacturers is. that get uh, audited by, it's, it's called the GMP cert- certificate. The manufacturers themselves get audited by the FDA that they follow all standards of FDA uh, qualifications to be a, you know, a, a, a practice that can be trusted in what they do. So yeah, they, you know, they file all the right paperwork, you know, when they bring in ingredients, they get them from qualified sources that they get checked. And, and what happens is, is these manufacturers get audited by the FDA and get this GMP certificate that they're, you know, they're GMP. And when they are GMP, then, you know, you can trust that that product is going to be up to standards. So it's safe to Most say that Blackstone was not a G and no, they used a smaller yeah. manufacturer, much smaller manufacturer. Um, and you can get away with a lot of these companies. They, you know, upcoming companies that are very, and they were very, just, they were just very, um, I don't know how the what's the word to say. They just took a lot of risk in, in growing something. And, you know, and I noticed the sales and, and then there were show offs, you know, at the Olympia putting their faces on, billboards and you know the a lot of stuff just you know it's almost like you're breaking the law but then you're showing off doing it as well and of course eventually you're going to get you know caught and and a lot of stuff they were doing is funny i was on my downfall at that time when shit was hitting the fan with me and i was on my downfall they were rising and what they were doing and i'm like how does this happen you know so you knew something but, was up because you no i i did but i was like i'm not the guy that's well, there the, snitching I'm- no, no, yeah, I'm not necessarily on the back end knew that they were spiking things, but you knew that seeing their growth and how fast it happened in such a competitive market, you're like, hmm. So you knew that it was something seemed fishy. Yes. Yeah. I did know that. I didn't know exactly what was happening, but I did know because when when certain brands, see, you got to got to remember, I'm a legacy brand that's been around for 25 years, so the growth has been here. We're not as big as we were, but we we are growing, and it's great to see year year after year that we're doubling in sales. And I'll be back to where I'll surpass that, you know, 80, that $85 million mark. That's my goal. You heard it today. Uh, and I believe you. <laughs> You're also coming out with aging uh, products. As oh, well. I have another brand called yeah. Gaspari Ageless. And, and the same reason I came up with Gaspari Nutrition was I was an athlete. I want to come up with products to help athletes. As I started getting into my 50s, I noticed things occurring to myself, you know, aches and pains you know, issues with, you know, like, you know, brain fog, um, you know, problems with natural testosterone, you know, men have problems with prostate. Um, so I looked at a lot of these, uh, issues, you know, heart issues. I went through, um, I don't know if you know this last year, I had a stent put in my, you know, in my heart because from all the years of training and, and, and just genetically, I had a blockage in one of my arteries and I caught it just by going in for checkups and I went to a cardiologist and they found um, actually two of my arteries. One of them, which they call the uh, Widowmaker, was 100% blocked, but my body built its own bypasses to feed my heart within the last 10 years. So it actually grew, a by, it's called a God's bypass that it grew because I said, you know, did I have the, you know, the Widowmaker and the, the, my cardiologist says, yeah, you had the Widowmaker, but you develop your own bypass to feed your heart. So even though that was clogged, you were still getting 
blood to your heart, <laughs> which wow. was, that was just a miracle. <laughs> the The other one was like 70% black. So I ended up having to put in a, a stent that's, you know, to open up that artery. And I was, I've been on heart meds and I'm, I feel great, you know, and, and I say a lot of issues past 50 are preventable. If you go to a doctor, you know, once you get into like late forties, fifties, you know, I tell all men and women to go, you know, get, um, um, what is it called when you, you get your, um, well, women, they should check breasts, men should check their prostate, um, a colonoscopy. I'm sorry. I just, I got a brain fart, but everyone should get a colonoscopy after age 47, 48. And then every five years from there. And then men in their fifties should, especially if they, you know, I'm not going to sit there and not admit that I've taken steroids when I competed, but I, you know, now go to a cardiologist and you should go to a cardiologist. And what scared me is I saw all these different bodybuilders dying from issues. Um, and I believe a lot of them are preventable if you go to a doctor and, you know, like mine, if I didn't get mine checked and now that was over, that's eight, nine months ago today, who knows? I could have, that 70% could have been 90% and then I could have had a heart attack. So speaking of steroids, are you concerned with the um, evolution the sport has taken specifically with men's open bodybuilding and the size, the enormous size that has evolved from all of these guys. And now you've got men in their twenties that are 300 pounds or heading up to 300 pounds. What do you think of the evolution of men's open? Do you think there is a longevity to it? I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I know that what we took back in the eighties and nineties are nothing compared to infinitesimal compared to what the guys today are taking it. I don't even know, like someone would ask me, you know, what would I do to be in an open show? I'd be like, I'm not, I'm the wrong guy. Cause I have no idea what to take and how to take it, you know, in those doses. But no, I, I believe it. There is a danger. You know, it's funny. It's from my era. If you looked at my era in bodybuilding, that's like up to the Lee Haney era to the nineties. Then the next era was the Dorian era, which guys were much, much bigger. And if you look at those bodybuilders, there's been a lot, and those are bodybuilders that are younger than me, a couple of years younger than me. A lot of those guys have passed, you know, died or have issues, you know, guys like Mike Matarazzo, who's dead. And, um, the other bodybuilder, he won a couple Arnold's, um, I can't think of his name, but he, uh, there's been a lot of deaths that I've seen in bodybuilders that are younger than me. But then guys from my era, like Lee Labrada, Barry DeMay, Lee Haney, myself, are all healthy. We don't have any you know, issues like these other guys that have a lot of issues because I think the dosages of drugs are much, much higher. And today, it's even higher. Like I just see that they're, they're just guys that have to be chemists to figure out how much to use to get to have that much size. And you're seeing bodybuilders in their late twenties and thirties dying, which shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be that way. And as a female in the sport for 20 years, I think I'm the most mind blown when we were just at nationals, for example, and I'm looking at people that are amateur competitors that are female and they're not placing, they're still amateurs. They're not getting first. They're, you know, fourth, fifth place. And they're extremely virilized. And the extreme to the women's sports, even bikini competitors, I hear so many things from competitors from bikini to just all the different divisions. And you can see the physical and the aesthetic transformations on the women's side as well. And I find it really concerning from a health standpoint. And I'm very concerned about the guys that are uh, very young and they're in maybe over a two-year standpoint. It's like 
hundred pound increase in, yeah. in volume. So do you think men's open bodybuilding will have longevity? Do you think it'll be around for a long time? I mean, I, I, I hate to disparage bodybuilding cause I love, you know, I've been always a bodybuilder and I loved it. I, I do see the popularity of classic bodybuilding coming bigger and bigger. I mean, you got a Chris Bumstead who's much bigger in following than a big Rami, you know, who's Mr. Olympian open. And I think they're a lot healthier, a classic bodybuilder. And I think people still look at them and say, wow, that's, they have unbelievable bodies and it's, and it's obtainable. If you look at today's bodybuilder, nobody thinks a young kid doesn't look at a Mr. Olympia or any of the top five Olympians and say, wow, that's attainable. They, they don't know how to look like that. It's just, it's so beyond what even I ever believed bodybuilding would get to. It's, you know, it's like everybody looks like the incredible Hulk, you know, there's so much bigger, um, in yeah, muscle where do we mass go and, from here. Exactly. Yeah. There's, I, I mean, and then the top of it, I don't see the conditioning that we had in our day. Like you don't see that grainy look. I mean, a, certain bodybuilders out there, they do. Um, the Iranian bodybuilder, he's, he's pretty Hottie, Hottie Chopin. Hottie Chopin, I think, it's, is very. He's in good shape he, even right now, and we're way yes. out from. He doesn't ever go out of shape. No, and there's a guy that to me looks like it, you know going back, you know, where they still look great. But then you look at a lot of other guys; they just look like balloons, you know. And and I don't understand how they need to. I think they need to lose some of that mass to to get more of the refinement used to be like if your waist wasn't a certain size you would get points taken off you could see guys posing and they have these big guts you know it's getting better but i mean it's still there that i think just this ability to get so much bigger i mean they're looking to be 400 pounds you know bodybuilders to be 400 pounds it's can you imagine before it was i thought it was impossible to see a 300 pound bodybuilder and of course ronnie coleman was able to do that and I think Big Rami is 300 pounds, which is unbelievable. Now I think they're trying to get to the next level of size that these guys are. Nick Walker is a huge, I don't want to say it, you know, I don't know what he's doing or anything, but there's a guy who's just massive. He is massive. He's young. He's massive. Yes. yes. We've seen Derek is getting, has gotten yeah. really big too. Derek, Derek, who won the 212, now I guess he's going to go into the open. He's, has he announced he's that? He's also yet? massive. What's that? Has he announced that yet? Because he's definitely massive. When he showed up and did that guest posing, it was yeah. like, where did that come from? So well, I, it, they're almost telling him that he should go into open because he could definitely do better. I mean, he'll he'll win two twelve, but I don't, it's going to be really hard for him to get down in weight like that. I, I was going to say, much, what's his weight limit? I mean, not his weight limit. What's his weight? Like how much weight would he have to cut to bring it back? I, I think he's like in the two forties. Two. I mean, if you look at him, uh, I mean. He's like a hottie. Hottie is not that big, but he still does very well in the open. I think Lunsfield can do very good coming in ripped, but much fuller and bigger and still place in that top five. You know, if hottie could do it, I think he could do it. Hottie's a character in stage. I enjoy watching him. You know, have you ever noticed that hottie will start like, so imagine there's two people in the center of the stage and hottie's on the side. Hottie kind of do you notice that yeah. he like comes inward and gets closer yeah. and closer to the guys to and they try to, to and I think the head judge is like, okay, move out. And he does for a second. Then he kind of comes back in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's That's definitely he a character. You can't like, he, you can't not see him on stage. No, he's, he's noticeable. And like, yeah. I, like I said, he, he still to me brings back old school bodybuilding more so 
or at least bodybuilding back, you know, during the, you know, I think bodybuilding's peak was during like the Ronnie Coleman era, you know, the Kevin LeBron, you know, Paul DeLette, all those bodybuilders at that era were just phenomenal. Every one of them was great, you know, and that was like the peak of bodybuilding. Do you think Sean Clarita will go to the open or you think he'll stay in 212? For the he's too small. I just think he's too, too small, too small to go into the. I mean, he's amazing bodybuilder, but I think he's going to stay in that two twelve and keep trying. That guy's got great density as well. I mean, I, I like him. He's a Jersey guy, you know. So he's one of my favorites. Very nice you know, guy too. Soon yeah. to be a very dad, nice. Saw, which yeah. was great. Oh, he's phenomenal. Such a nice guy, and he's a guy that went to one of my seminars way back i had a posing clinic and i held this thing that i i ran with my company and he was one of the guys that came there and he actually showed it you know he was like when he first started he was this little skinny guy and from from that to where he you know where he became is like just unbelievable it's amazing so rich where can we go find everything about what you got going on where your supplements how do we get in contact with you Um, if you want to get in contact with me, go to my Instagram, uh, at, at rich Gaspari, um, going to see any Gaspari products, go to Gaspari nutrition.com. If you're looking for anti-aging products, go to Gaspari ageless.com. And you're always in your parents' garage coming up with the next thing. Like, that's <laughs> yeah, I haven't been, my, un- unfortunately my parents passed away, but I, you know, I still grind and, you know, enjoy, you know, coming up with formulations. You know, you know, I think one of your questions, like what's the next big product I, I'm not sure what that is, but I mean, if it's there, I'll, I'll find it's, it's whatever, whatever's trending, you know, you got to find it when it's trending. When did these ideas come to you? Is it, do they come to you while you're training? Is that your Zen where you kind of get the, I don't know, the channel? Uh, It's it's more like, it's more like just getting out there and, you know, going to the gym and listening to people and, you know, looking it's not like just one aha moment to say, this is what I should develop. It's kind of like, collaboration of you know traveling around and and finding you know something that i see everybody's doing just like the egg protein it was like where did egg protein go i just that was kind of like you said it just came in my head you know one night it's like where did egg protein go and why isn't anybody selling it and then i go what is selling that has you know that have egg protein i found like two brands selling it and i'm like well there's no competition either this is a stupid idea or this is a genius idea. That's the way I would say it to myself. And then I, and then I sit there and I'm like, I don't think it's stupid. I mean, I ask people, you know, if you had a good protein, would you use it? If it was an egg protein, and and that's how I just, you know, that's how I come up with ideas. <laughs> Rich, there's two viewer questions. If we just take two more moments of your time to answer, okay. a couple of viewers asked specifically for you to answer the questions. Uh, one person, his name is Isaiah, says you are a legend. And he asks, he says, you were instrumental in bringing a new standard of definition and conditioning to modern bodybuilding. He says, in the years during and since your competition pinnacle, how have you felt about conditioning trends in the industry and the health effects associated with different strategies to get those levels of conditioning? We touched a little bit on it, but what would you say? Yeah, about I mean, fortunately, I had genetics to be able to get leaner. And then once I saw that I was able to get leaner, I focused on a lot of it had to do with, you know, of course, nutrition and diet, logging everything that I ate and looking at percentages of carbs, proteins, fats. And what worked best for me was, you know, 35% protein, 45% carbs, you know, 
15 to 20% fat. That was kind of my standard. And what I, what I ate to get myself, believe it or not, ripped. I never followed low carb diets, but that was my body that it worked well for me. I mean, today's standards, I, I mean, I don't know if you saw, there was, there was one of these podcasts that I had Ronnie Coleman, I had Dorian judging Brandon Curry saying, you know, what do you think of this guy? And they said, this guy wouldn't even place in the top five. And he, you know, back in the day, because he wasn't hard enough, he's, he's two to three weeks out, you know, all these things, because what we talked about earlier is a lot of bodybuilders are just trying to be so much bigger, sacrificing that density that the other bodybuilders had, even, you know, from Ronnie Coleman to Dorian Yates, they, they, they went from what I look like and got themselves bigger and shredded, you know, as well with striated glutes. So that's why I say that was the peak of bodybuilding. Um, I'm not sure of what's going on because like I said, I'm not familiar with the the type of, um, you know, supplements or drugs that bodybuilders are taking to be able to obtain that hardness. Um, I knew there was a couple of bodybuilders that were using certain products that, you know, they were, what's the one product they were using um, that was actually like Andreas Munzer used it to, it was like a bug cl- uh, killer. And what it did is it would, it, the way it worked, it, it would heat up the inside of the bug and melt the insides. And if you use just a small amount of this, if you, if you increase your core temperature. DNP? D- DNP. Yeah, that's yeah. it. DNP. Using that type that of product. That is so dangerous. That's one of the most dangerous. And I was reading about like, because everyone thought I was using that when I was competing. And I like, I had no idea what that was. But, you know, they're using some. So what is this? It's, well, it's a, it's a bug killer. And what it does is it increases the temperature inside the bug so that is the insides melt. But if you can, if you can increase your temperature core, you're going to burn more fat and you're going to get more ripped. But then I guess Andreas Munzer took too much and it melted his organs and he, and he died. Yeah. You can't, Jesus. if you take too much, there's no coming back from that. So I'm not sure if DMP is still around today. It's still, still around. I don't know if people are using it like yeah, to use it to get ripped. You know, but to get ripped, people use a so, lot of diuretics, like multiple, multiple diuretics. And there's a lot and, of and, the organ failure that is happening from that. Yeah. And I never believed in diuretics as well, because if you take all the water out of your muscle, you're going to look like a deflated balloon. Yeah. We just so had Dr. Enough. Guillermo Escalante on the show and mm-hmm. he wrote that peak week strategy, that paper about peak week. It's been documented. And that was pretty fascinating. He was on saying nobody should ever ever use a diuretic. You do not need a diuretic. You're just not lean enough. No, that's, and, and that's something that I always found when you are, I always found that I had to be ready two weeks out from a show. And then what I did is I slowly filled my body back up with glycogen. I, I slowly, like I would almost get to an overtrained state two weeks out from the show. And then from there, slowly fill back up. And that would work best for me. I was, I, I never had to do anything drastic. I never carb loaded, sodium loaded. I just would slowly just go See? into the show because it was already ripped. Strategic, focused, driven, counted your macros, probably to, you probably paid attention to everything, had a log. That's a champion. Oh, thank you. That's a champion. <laughs> One more viewer question and I'll let you go. I could, I could talk to you all day long, Rich. You're just thank saying you. wealth of knowledge and I could gossip about the industry just on and on and on. Because, <laughs> you know, you, who do you talk to that knows what I'm talking about, right? Who do we talk to? 
Yeah. So <laughs> one more question. Yeah. I know we just yeah. talked to each other. So Jennifer asks, how do you decide what supplements to create first, meaning protein powder or vitamins? So if you're somebody who's just getting into this, what would you recommend are the basic staples for the supplements that they should take? Well, when you look at products, supplements, that is, yeah, when you look at supplements that you're making, the, the one thing bad about, you know, everybody uses a protein, the problem with protein, it's saturated and the profit margins you make on protein is very, very little. So protein should be the last product you come up with, you know, when you start a brand. I, I came up with, uh, when we talked about when I started my brand, it took me, I guess, close to the fifth year before I developed myofusion of protein because I was selling all these other products that were bringing in more capital to the brand. So if you're going to come up with a product, you got to come up with uh, products that, you know, one or two products that you think, you know, there's a need for, the, but also you can make a high profit because if you have a high profit, it's going to help stage you to, you know, develop other products from the profits that you make. You know, you want to, you want to have healthy margins. Um, so if you develop a protein, you will be screwed because the protein is so competitive and it, I mean, besides just flavoring, which couldn't, which could differentiate you. Um, it's very hard to, to say like my protein's better than this protein because they're all kind of the same. If you have an isolate or if you have a WPC 80, um, or hydrolyzed protein, they're all basically the same. The only thing differentiating them is the flavor, different flavors and stuff, but you're not going to make any margins. So for, you know, this person, I would definitely try to develop something that you feel there's a need for, or that you're going to change like a pre-workout or a fat burner, but also those products have higher margins that you can, you, they can become your flagship products to build the brand. Now, this person's a consumer, so she's getting into bodybuilding, considering doing her first show. She goes to Gaspari Nutrition's website, which is gasparinutrition.com, right? Yes. Okay, so it. she goes to gasparinutrition.com. She goes to your supplement line. What would you tell her are the top supplements that she should incorporate into her nutrition and to help her along her competition journey? Um, one of the top supplements I sell is my, believe it or not, is my multivitamin. It's called the Anavite. Anavite is three products in one. It contains, uh, all the essential vitamins, all the essential minerals, but they're chelated minerals. So they're even better bioavailable. We also have 3.2 uh, grams of beta alanine, which, uh, the studies show that the 3.2 grams and above will help lower lactic acid. So it, it'll enable you to train harder, longer. We also have two grams of carnitine in, in Anavite. So <clears throat> carnitine has many great effects in burning fat, increasing energy within the cellular level. Um, so that's the one product I recommend to everyone. And it's, believe it or not, it's my number one product is my Anavite multivitamin. Uh, number two is, you know, taking on a good protein, you know, a basic protein, whether it's, you know, my myofusion or my egg protein or you're a vegan and you want to use vegan protein, we have a proven vegan protein, you know, get on a protein because you want to have multiple meals. You're going to try to eat, you know, five to six meals a day. So taking in two proteins, and I would say supplements are supplements. Don't substitute them for food. A supplement is a supplement. So you using, and it's hard for people to, if they're into training to eat six times a day, just food. So take a protein. So you have your vitamin, your protein. Then from there, I would take something for recovery. So that would be a branch chain amino acid. Um, we have a proven EAA, which is essential amino acids or 
amino acids, which is our brand, you know, our straight branch chain amino acids. Then if you're really serious, then from there, maybe getting into a pre-workout, you know, to use. But the basics should be protein, vitamin, and BCAAs, those three products. If if you have a budget, and then and then after that. You can use pump products. You can use pre-workouts. You can, there's so many other products, you know, you could take. So they would find all of that on GasparinNutrition.com. And Rich, I can't thank you enough for spending your time with us today. You're just a wealth of knowledge. I love your work ethic. I love everything about all the discussion that we had today. Can't thank you enough. So once again, please tell everybody where they can follow you on all your social media platforms, because you do have quite a presence everywhere. <laughs> thank you. Um, again, at Rich Gasparri on Instagram. I'm actually uh, Rich Gasparri88 on TikTok. I started a TikTok account. Um, I'm on Twitter at Rich Gasparri. But then, like I said, for the products, you go to GasparriNutrition.com or you go to GasparriAgeless.com. Wonderful. Thank you again, awesome. Rich. We appreciate your time today. Yeah. yeah Thank you, guys. Rich. I, had, I had fun. Ever wonder if you are posing correctly for your division? Learn to Pose is dedicated to taking out the guesswork on how to pose for all categories in bodybuilding. Learn five ways you can improve your posing skills in five minutes guaranteed at www.learntopose.com. There are free posing tutorials available for the bikini, figure, and men's physique categories and more on the way for other divisions in bodybuilding. It's free, so go access your free posing tutorial for bikini, figure, or men's physique at learntopose.com.